Dr. Eric Klein is professor of classics and anthropology and the former chair of the Department of Classical and Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations and the current director of the George Washington University Capital Archaeological Institute. He's a National Geographic explorer, a Fulbright scholar, and an NEH public scholar, and an award-winning teacher and author. That's why I told my daughter Clara, as she goes through high school, when she takes classes on Greco-Roman archaeology and history, history of world civilizations, she now has an email for a famous professor to ask any questions. Just if she's taking a test, you can't answer the questions. Thank you. Um, an archaeologist and ancient historian by training, Dr. Klein's primary fields of study are biblical archaeology, the military history of the Mediterranean world from antiquity to the present, and the international connections between Greece, Egypt, and the Near East during the late Bronze Age. He's an experienced and active field archaeologist with more than 30 seasons of excavation and survey to his credit since 1980 in Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Cyprus, Greece, Crete, and the United States of America. Where do you dig in the United States of America? <laughs> California? Where? Okay. Gilroy. I don't, maybe, maybe that's where the lost tribes were. Well, I guess we'll find out very shortly. Um, Dr. Klein is currently co-director of the renewed series of archaeological excavations at the site of Tel, is it Tel Cabri or Cabri? Tel Cabri, also located in Israel. I don't know where that is, but maybe you'll tell us. Rosh Hanikra. Okay. The project, which began in 2005, is run by the University of Haifa and the George Washington University. He's, he was also a member of the Megiddo Expedition in Israel, excavating at the Biblical Armageddon for 10 seasons over a 20-year period from 1994-2014. I do want to point out and thank Ahuva Ho for making this program possible with her great recommendations. So, uh, Professor Klein, the mic is yours, and everyone enjoy lunch and our program. So hopefully I'll see you tonight. Thank you. All right, you can all hear me now? I'll keep this up where I can hold it. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for the introduction last night and today. Thank you, Ahuva, for recommending me. I hope I don't disappoint. Thank you all for coming back. I recognize a lot of faces from last night. We will change gears here today. Um, but I also do apologize for bringing you inside on such a gorgeous day, but you're probably used to it, yeah? This is one of the days where I miss being in Southern California. We don't have days like this in Washington, D.C. all that often, but never mind. So, all right, well, I have good news and bad news for the lecture today. Um, Shall I start with the good news? All right, let's do that. So in the last 10 years, there have been a number of different discoveries. Noah's Ark, Ark of the Covenant, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the Exodus, all of these have been discovered just in the last decade, which is good news. The bad news is that they've been discovered by a former SWAT team member who became a biblical investigator a filmmaker who calls himself the naked archaeologist, but is neither naked nor an archaeologist, uh, a nurse anesthetist from Nashville, Tennessee, and a whole host of others, none of whom has any archaeological training whatsoever. This last gentleman with the beard claimed that he was the inspiration for Indiana Jones until George Lucas and Steven Spielberg served him with a cease and desist notice. So, what they are doing is what we call junk science. Uh, this is where you advocate a cause, you pay very little attention to the investigative process, 
You ignore any evidence that comes up contrary, and you, above all, advertise a high moral purpose. So Ron Pritchard, who's a geologist, coined this term, and I think it's very appropriate in archaeology. But let me give you the backstory here, how I came to be doing this. There was, some of you may remember, about a decade or so ago on the National Geographic Channel, they did something called the Science of the Bible. I don't know if any of you have seen that. They repeat it every so often. And I was the consultant for that. I think it was eight shows, and I was in four or five of them. And at the end of it, I said to them, you know, you really need a book for people who are interested that want to go on and read after they've watched the series. And they said, that's a great idea. Do you know anybody that could possibly write it? I just looked at them and said, yes. <laughs> so this is where all of this comes from, is out of that series. And I published the book back in about 2007 from Eden to Exile, Unraveling Mysteries of the Bible. And it was in the course of doing the research for that book that I realized a couple of things. One, archaeologists have kind of yielded the public arena to what I would call enthusiastic amateurs, and that the general public usually doesn't know who or what to believe. And I cite my grandmother-in-law, my wife's grandmother, Ethel Honey Schwartz, and she would call me up and say, Eric, they discovered Noah's Ark. And I would say, again? <laughs> so she represents for me the, you know, the informed public that doesn't really know who to believe. So I decided at that point that we really had to take back our field and present what we do and what we don't know about all of these things. And I give you as an example, Professor Larry Steger, who digs at Ashkelon. You may have heard they just found a Philistine cemetery there that they announced a week or two ago, and he said, and I quote, one of the problems is that there are so many biblical illiterate people around the world that they don't know what is real judicial assessment and what is what some of us in the field call fantastic archaeology. Now I know you all here are biblical literate, so that doesn't apply to you, but there are a lot of people out there that just don't know what to believe. And Jonathan Reed, who teaches at University of Laverne here, he once said, and I loved it, he said, look, this is, this is archaeoporn. He said, you enjoy it but, while you're watching it, but deep down you know it's wrong. Right? <laughs> And this is true. If you watch anything on history, discovery, a lot of the channels out there, you know that what, what they do is they bring up these you know, amateurs who espouse the theory and then somebody else who comes up and says, no, not so much. Right? But nobody likes watching us being negative. They like watching the alien theory and all of that. So I end up going through several televisions per year because I throw things at it whenever I watch these. So. What I wanted to do in this book and in this lecture uh, is I go through seven of the questions that I am asked most frequently. Uh, I get these all of the time, cocktail parties and everywhere else. Right, where is the Garden of Eden? Where's Noah's Ark? Have we found Sodom and Gomorrah? What really happened with Moses and the Exodus? What about Joshua? Did he actually conquer Jericho? Where's the Ark of the Covenants? That one's easy. Of course, we know it's in the warehouse in, uh, in Washington, D.C., right? right? If you haven't, don't know what I'm referring to, go watch the first Indiana Jones. And then where are the 10 lost tribes? Are they actually lost? And what I did in each chapter, because I wanted to show what we do and we, and we don't know, 
I went through a brief recapitulation of what the Bible says. I then talk about the available evidence, both written and archeological. I put it into a historical context because I do think there's a kernel of truth, if not more, about most of these things. And then I go through and evaluate some of the proposed solutions, including the ones that you see on TV. And then I presented the most likely or logical solution in each case. I will warn you though, of the seven mysteries, I don't answer six of them. They are still mysteries, that's why they're called mysteries. It's only the 10 lost tribes that I think I may have an idea where they might have gone, and if we have time to do that today, I will get to that. But what I wanted to focus on, and again, I apologize for going through this really, really rapidly, but I wanted to take a quick look at Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark, Sodom and Gomorrah, Ark of the Covenant, and the 10 lost tribes, and show you what we did. So, for example, where is the Garden of Eden? This is an interesting question. Uh, the biblical account doesn't help us out very much. There's only one part in Genesis that tells us where the Garden of Eden might have been, and I've got it here. I know it's too small for you to read, so I'll just read it uh, in brief. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed. Okay, a river flows out of Eden to water the garden. From there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It's the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Uh, the name of the second is Gihon. It flows around the entire land of Cush, which we think might be Ethiopia. The name of the third is Hadekel, which we know is the Tigris River. That flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates, which they call Prat. So in order to figure out where the Garden of Eden is, we need a geography lesson. We need to look for four rivers two of which we know and two of which we don't know. So Tigris and Euphrates were good, but the other two we don't know. So people have put the Garden of Eden in Iraq, they've put it in Egypt, they've put it in Turkey, they've put it in Iran, Arabian Peninsula, underneath the Persian Gulf, and even in Jackson County, Missouri. <laughs> All of these have been suggested as possible locations for the Garden of Eden. Now, out of all these, to put this into a realistic aspect, I think probably the most logical place for it to be is somewhere in Mesopotamia, right? The land between the two rivers. That would be modern-day Iraq and northern Syria. This is where agriculture is invented. It's where domestication of plants and animals took place about 10,000 years ago. It's also where irrigation is invented 5,500 years ago. And basically, they're creating, uh, you know, a paradise out of desert there, just as the uh, people did in Israel. Uh, the Sumerians who live there have similar stories about creation and paradise, so I would be looking for somewhere in there rather than, say, in Jackson County, Missouri. Now, where it gets interesting is that um, Juris Zarens, who is a professor at Southwest Missouri State, he actually says that if it's going to be anywhere, it'll be in that same region. The problem is that the waters have risen in that region, and in southern Mesopotamia between about 5,000 and 4,000 BC, so 7,000 to 6,000 years ago, the waters rose. It's a known geological um, you know, thing that happened. Uh, and he says that if the Garden of Eden is anywhere, it's there, but it is now underwater, which 
on the one hand is an interesting suggestion, on the other hand it's very convenient, isn't it? Because there's no way that you are actually gonna be able to go find it. And in fact, even if we do find it, I'm not sure we're gonna be able to recognize it because the Garden of Eden was in existence way before writing was invented. So there won't be a sign that says, welcome to <laughs> the Garden of Eden. Even though there actually is one, it's in Iraq today. But Somebody made that up. So I don't know how we're gonna know. Are we gonna find a snakeskin on the ground? Uh, who knows? So this is, for me, one of the enduring mysteries is uh, where is the Garden of Eden? I don't think we have a solution, nor do I think we ever are going to, even if it makes good television fodder. So if we move on then, Noah's Ark, perhaps there's more of a chance of finding this, and again, there's been innumerable television shows about it. You all know the biblical story, right, from Genesis 6, go out and make yourself uh, an ark, and we have the entire description, it's supposed to be 300 cubits and uh, 50 cubits in width, 30 cubits high. Some of you um, may be able to build this at home if you want. The directions are that explicit. So you're going to need a large backyard if you want to do it. Now, people have been claiming almost every year to have found Noah's Ark. I give you just an example or two. Uh, Bob Cornuck out of Colorado said in 2006 that he had found it uh, up on a mountain in Iran. Uh, and in fact, he's probably looking in the correct place because the Bible says Noah's Ark landed on the mountains of Ararat, not on Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat in Turkey was given that name just a couple hundred years ago as a tourist attraction. The mountains of Ararat, which is what the biblical account says, are probably the region of ancient Urartu, which is modern-day Iran. So he's actually looking in the correct place if he's looking in Iran. But look what he is saying. He says this is the remnants of Noah's Ark. The problem is he didn't bring specialists with him on the trip. When we run an archaeological expedition, we have all kinds of people there that aren't archaeologists. We have geologists, we have physicists, we have all kinds of people, but he didn't. So when he published his results out on the internet and said that the rocks look, and I quote, uncannily like wood, we have cut thin sections of the rock made and we can see wooden cell structures, the geologist promptly weighed in, and here's Kevin Pickering, who's at University College London, uh, who's a specialist in sedimentary rocks, and he says, look, the photos seem to show iron-stained sedimentary rocks. It's probably thin beds of silicified sandstones and shales, most likely laid down in a marine environment a long time ago. Now, if Kevin Pickering had been on the expedition, he would have said to Bob, no, this is not Noah's Ark, it's rock. And nothing would have ever happened. Uh, just to make sure, Robert Spicer weighed in. He's from Open University in England. And he said, look, what needs to be documented are preserved human-made joints like mortise and tenon or even pegged boards, right? Like if anybody here has a boat, you know what it would look like and you need pictures of what it looks like. And Bob Spicer says, I see none of this in the pictures. It's all very unconvincing. And so in the end, Kornicke posted kind of a revision on his website and he says, is this the remains of Noah's Ark? We don't make the claim that we found it, we'll let you draw your own conclusions. And that's fine by me. But originally he had said that he had found it. So he revised it in these lights. And that's fine. Yes, it's a candidate, the research continues, that's good. Everybody's welcome to go look for it if they want to. 
Um, it probably started, though, with Ron Wyatt, which may be a name known to some of you. He went looking uh, for Noah's Ark after this picture appeared in Life magazine back in 1960, showing what looks like a boat right there. Uh, and he, has, he looked at it for it for a very long time, 1977, even published a book in which he's looking like Indiana Jones right there. Uh, and in fact, the Turkish authorities decided to make this a national park, and it's now an attraction, Noah's Ark. But um, it is unlikely to be, and in fact, he even got himself into a bit of trouble. He and a couple of uh, his friends were kidnapped back in 1991. I don't know if any of you remember this story, but this was um, from USA Today. It simply said, Ark Hunters Abducted three from USA among five seized in Turkey. And I have an acquaintance who said that um, uh, he was in uh, as part of the team that rescued them. And I said, can I use your name anywhere? He says, no, no, you can't. But this was a true story. They were in fact kidnapped and had to be rescued. So one of the problems with most of Wyatt's claims is that they're false, they're, they're not true. Uh, radar does not show that there's a man-made boat there, there is not a metallic pattern, um, there were no metal rods found, and so on and so forth. Now, what none of these uh, archeologists, as they're called, and they're spelled A-R-K, not A-R-C-H, all these archeo, that's an archeological joke, by the way, but what these, false archaeologists are doing, they're not realizing that there are other stories that are out there that are actually earlier, right? And this is known um, probably to, to a number of you, that there are at least three earlier stories of one of these worldwide deluges where people survive. So the Sumerians have it from about 2700 BC, and the guy that survives is Ziasudra. There is an, an Akkadian version from about 2200 BCE, uh, from uh, where the guy Atrahasis survives. Epigigilgamesh is about 1800 BCE, and Utnapishtim survives there. And then, of course, we've got the biblical account where Noah survives. So just to give you one example, here is a cuneiform tablet from about 1740 with the Sumerian story. <laughs> And here it says, Zia Sudra made an opening in the huge boat. It is the same story. Uh, and then probably the most famous is Atrahasis, the Akkadian version. And here, you notice there's a big chunk missing from it. It's actually my favorite story. George Smith was a banker in England in about 1850. Now he was a banker by day. But at night, he worked in the British Museum, helping them put back together these fragments of the tablets that they had excavated in Iraq and brought back. And as he was piecing this one together, he realized, and he was able to read Akkadian, he realized that he was reading the story of the Great Flood. And he got all excited, he made a big announcement, uh, made all the papers in London, but there is a big hole right in the middle. So one of the London newspapers offered uh, kind of a reward if anybody would go back and find the missing piece. I think they offered 50 pounds, which doesn't sound like a lot, but back then it was. So he decided to do it. George Smith went to Iraq and went to Nineveh, which is where the other pieces had come from. And there he did something that I think was absolutely brilliant. Rather than starting to excavate again at this huge site, he went to the back dirt piles. 
Now, what this means is when we're excavating, we have to put the dirt somewhere. And he figured that maybe they had missed the piece. So he excavated their back dirt piles. Boom, within a day, he had found the missing piece. He also found 300 other pieces from other tablets, meaning that their workmen were not real careful, right? So, but we've seen this elsewhere. I would love to go back to Troy or even to Megiddo because I think all the other teams there miss stuff and excavate their back dirt piles. That would be fun. At any rate, what he found when he put the piece in was that everything fit and it was good. And so now we've got things like the Epic of Gilgamesh in 12 different tablets. This is remember from about 1800 BC, but even here we're still missing pieces. So in fact, last year I think they announced that a new piece had been found and it fit right in with the missing part. And it turns out it talks about monkeys and other things in the forest from the cedars of Lebanon, if I remember correctly. So there are still bits and pieces that are being found here. And in fact, at the British Museum, uh, a scholar two years ago, three years ago, actually found another version of the one with Atrahasis and published it, and it turns out in that version, the ark is round. It's like a cornicle. So there are all kinds of um, different versions, shall we say, floating around back then. No. Sorry, I'm sorry. My, my daughter now says I do dad jokes. Is that true? I, yeah, these are always my jokes, but now I guess they're dad jokes, but anyway. So just to give you an example, the flood story from the old Babylonian version, I won't read the whole thing, but you know the city of Shurapak, it stands on the banks of the Euphrates. That city grew old and the gods that were in it were old. There was Anu, lord of the firmament, their father, warrior Enlil, their counselor, and so on and so forth. Uh, here's the interesting thing. He says, in those days, the world teemed, the people multiplied, the world bellowed like a wild bull, and the great god was aroused by the clamor. And this is not in a good way. He was woken up and he's not happy. Enlil heard the clamor and he said to the gods in council, the uproar of mankind is intolerable, sleep is no longer possible by reason of the babel, so the gods agreed to exterminate mankind. All right, so why is the flood sent in the Babylonian version? It's because humans are too noisy. It's not because of ethics or morals. It's as if like the frat boys in the next house are throwing too large a party and you go over and decide to exterminate them instead of just calling the police, right? Maybe an overreaction here. So this is what I would say is a, a very good example uh, if you compare it to the Hebrew version where the flood is being sent because of an ethical or moral reason, it's a good example of what I call a transmitted narrative, right, where a known story that is known to earlier people back in the third millennium is being transmitted through the generations, Sumerians to Akkadians to Babylonians to Canaanites and then to the Israelites, and they take a story, I think, it's just a hypothesis, that is well known and they put a moral and ethical ending at the end. That for me is one of the explanations for how come all these stories are so similar and that you've got other people that survive it. So like who's releasing the dove in the story? Is it Noah or is it Utnapishtim? Atrahasa Ziasudra, I don't know. Of course, the other possibility is that there was a worldwide flood and everybody's got their own version, right? That's also a possibility. But I like the idea of a transmitted narrative. And it fits also 
with some of the archaeology that we've found, uh, there is now archaeological and geological evidence that the Black Sea did flood in about 5500 BC. This area down by Istanbul broke through. Uh, the whole thing just caved in and the water came in and uh, essentially increased uh, the Black Sea, flooding the whole region. And that would be 7,500 years ago, so that could have been the actual event that is handed down because it would have impacted everybody up in this region, which is getting close to the area of Mesopotamia. So if I'm searching for some bit of archaeological evidence, that would be the best that I can come up with. But I'm afraid that I don't think we're likely to ever find Noah's Ark. Even if it once existed, I think it's probably perished long ago. It was made out of wood, it's disintegrated. And even if it didn't disintegrate, it was probably taken apart and reused, right? You land, first thing you've got to do is build a house, a barn, and everything else. So I think they would have taken the ark apart and reused it. So instead of looking for Noah's ark, I think we should be looking for Noah's ark and outhouse and farm building and all of that, but even, even so. The only place that the ark by itself would have survived is in a place like at the bottom of the Black Sea where there's no oxygen and it would have survived. And in fact, Bob Ballard, the guy who found the Titanic, he has done investigation in the Black Sea and he has found Neolithic settlements in there as well as Greek and Roman ships that look like they sunk yesterday because there's no oxygen, there's no microbes, nothing eats it, the wood, the rope, everything is still down there. So. If Noah's Ark sank at the bottom of the Black Sea, it might be in perfect condition. I'm doubtful, but the other place could be in Egypt where they keep finding wooden boats because the desert sand preserves it. The one place it won't have survived is up on top of a mountain. So I think if you're looking up there, you're gonna be out of luck. But besides which, I wanna go looking for Utnapishtim's Ark. Uh, or Zeusudras or Atrahasuses, but I've been having trouble getting funding for those. So if anybody knows, it's like it's time to stop looking for Noah. Let's go look for Utnapishtim, but uh, hard to get funding for that. There have been recent sightings, though. I will say the, uh, in Kentucky, you know, Noah's Ark just opened up uh, in July, right? And then uh, my favorite, uh, it's actually kind of sad, there was, uh, there is an ark that was being built in Norway for the last decade or more, and the guy just started sailing towards Brazil to get there in time for the Olympics, but when he got into one of the ports in Norway, he promptly ran into a Coast Guard vessel right away, so it never made the voyage. So those uh, most recent Noah's Ark, except for, um, and here, this is that book I was referring to, Irving Finkel from the British Museum. If anybody wants to read it, it's a great book. The Ark Before Noah, this is the new tablet that he found that says the Ark was round. He just came up with that as a book. It's extremely well written. But um, I understand that Jody Magnus was here lecturing, and this is what she, on the left there, just announced like a week or two ago that her floor mosaics at the synagogue at Hukok uh, actually have a scene of Noah's Ark. And uh, we've got, among others, uh, fish swallowing various people there. So we wait to see what Jody uh, has found this coming summer, or this past summer, and uh, what she will find in the future. So there have been some recent sightings of Noah's Ark. Now, in terms of other things, and I'll, I'll speed up a little bit here, Sodom and Gomorrah, where are they? The short answer is, I've got no idea. 
right? And neither does anybody else. Again, the story comes from Genesis, this time Genesis 19. We've basically got Abraham as the eyewitness. Um, but in terms of finding it, well, there have been a lot of claims, but nobody's actually found it. Ron Wyatt said he had found it as well, and he pointed to things in the cliff by the Dead Sea, and these things, which he said was brimstone. Again, what he needed to do was bring geologists with him, because as Elizabeth Gierlowski Kordesh, who's at Ohio University, she said that the sulfur nodules that he called brimstone are just part of the sediment. It's what you get in an ancient lake. It's a little dead animal around which things have accumulated. And the um, formations that he saw in the, in the cliff faces, that's what you get when you have lake sediments accumulating. And this goes back to the late Pleistocene period. So again, what he was looking at are geological formations, not archeological. If there is any archeology, span uh, it may be that Babadra and Numaira may be the, uh, the remnants of an idea. These are over in Jordan today on the other side of the Dead Sea. And they are both destroyed at about the right time. Uh, the problem is they're a little bit early. They're 2600 BC. The date for Abraham should be 1800 to 2100 BCE, somewhere right in there. So these are probably destroyed at least 500 years too early. Still, we could have what's called a teleological explanation, which is where you see the ruins of something and you kind of make up a story to explain the ruins. And it may be that it were the ruins of Babadra and Numaira where they said, ah, way back when there was uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And it may be that that's where it comes from. There is currently one archeologist, Steve Collins, out of Trinity Southwest, uh, who thinks he is excavating Sodom up at the northern end of the Dead Sea. Uh, what he has for sure is a very interesting Middle Bronze Age settlement that seems to be destroyed about 1600 BCE. But there's no link, at least to my mind yet, that it could possibly be Sodom. And even I would say the dates are too low. They're after Abraham. So we'll have to see what he comes up with as he keeps excavating there. But so have the Sodom and Gomorrah been found so far? I would say no, not yet. But there will be people that keep looking. Uh, as for the Ark of the Covenants, uh, again, this is what everybody loves to look for. Uh, again, here, Exodus 25 tells you how to make one if you want to do so on your own. And again, Ron Wyatt said that he had found it. This is where I come to my rule of three or more. If you found one of these things, I'm, I say, good for you. If you found two, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, you're like really lucky. If you found three, I'm like, okay, now I'm gonna start being suspicious. And Ron Wyatt's found, I think, at least five of these, so I would be suspicious. In this case, he tells the story, uh, or he told the story, he's passed away now. Uh, he was waiting for his flight out of Tel Aviv, and it was delayed, so he was up in Jerusalem. He was wandering around, and all of a sudden, uh, his left arm raised up and pointed, and a voice said, that's Jeremiah's grotto and the Ark of the Covenant is in there. And he realized the voice was his own. He was basically speaking in tongues. So he started excavating. I don't know how he got the permit from the Antiquities Authority, but he excavated with his sons. 
And eventually, and this is straight off of his website, he said they broke through into a cave and crawled into it, and in there he saw, and again, I know this is too small to read, they saw in this cave the Ark of the Covenant, the table of shewbread, the golden altar, and even the seven-branched candlestick. But the one thing that they didn't have was a camera, and that is a hallmark with all of these discoveries, either they don't have a camera or it's malfunctioned or they lost the film and for some reason there's never any pictures of these things. So he had no fewer than, I think it's seven different pages on the Ark of the Covenant on his website. But then after he passed away, they, his own archeological research foundation, did some checking and when they went back, they said that they couldn't find anything that actually confirmed what he had claimed and so they took all the web pages down, all right? So, I don't know. Um, probably even more famous though, some of you may have read the book The Sign and the Seal by Graham Hancock where he suggests that the Ark is down in Ethiopia, specifically Axum, Ethiopia. And this is actually based on real legends and myths uh, preserved in Ethiopia. There is a book called The Glory of the Kings and it says that Solomon met Sheba. Uh, but in this version, she's an Ethiopian queen named uh, Makeda, and they have a, a kid, Menelik, and that when Menelik came up to Jerusalem to visit his dad, when he left, he took the Ark of the Covenant with him, leaving a duplicate in its place, so they didn't realize that the original was gone, and that he brought it to Ethiopia and put it in this building in Aksum, where it is to this day. So that a lot of people do believe that there is a caretaker that guy in yellow right there he's the only one allowed in the building he's the only one allowed to look in so if you go there and yell to him is the ark in there he'll look in and go yep <laughs> and that's as close as you're gonna get now there is a story of a British archaeologist who got in there during I think it was World War II in the 1940s and he was able to go in and he says there is an ark in there but it's one of these medieval copies so it's an ark but not the ark which is is kind of interesting for my mind what I think actually happened is that it was probably melted down accidentally or destroyed accidentally. Uh, the book of Second Estrus, which not everybody reads, and in fact, we're not sure if we should believe it or not, but Second Estrus implies that the ark was destroyed. The author is lamenting about the fall of Jerusalem, and he says, our sanctuary is laid waste, our altar broken down, our temple destroyed, the ark of our covenant is spoiled meaning destroyed or melted down or something like that. Now he is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586. He actually comes in four times uh, and takes people away. This becomes the Babylonian exile. And so I think that at that time when Jerusalem is burned to the ground, the temple, Solomon's temple is destroyed. We have archeological evidence from the destruction from 586, including arrowheads, three of which are made of bronze and look like they're Babylonian, they're trilobate, they're three-sided, and then one is iron and looks Israelite. 
This is the actual battle from when Jerusalem is destroyed. And we know that the temple is destroyed. I suspect that the ark was destroyed accidentally at that time as well. And one of the reasons I say is because Nebuchadnezzar lists in his inscriptions, what we would call an extra biblical inscription outside the Bible, he says what he brought back from Jerusalem and the ark is not listed. Similarly, when Cyrus the Great allowed everyone to go back when the Babylonian exile ended in 539 or 538 BCE, he says what they brought back with them and the Ark of the Covenant is not listed. So I think it's gone beyond then. There's a number of suggestions, but again, I come back to the first Indiana Jones that it's in a warehouse somewhere in DC. Now, all of those I don't have an answer for, as I've said. In fact, six of the seven I don't have an answer for. But the lost tribes of Israel, I think I might have an answer. So I, with your permission, I'd like to try out the hypothesis on you and see if you'll go along the journey with me and see if there might be something to it. So where did they go and where are they now? Now, one of the reasons why I like this so much is that we know their disappearance was a real historical event. We know it happened because the kingdom of Israel disappeared after 720 BCE. These are the Neo-Assyrians that come in, capture the northern kingdom, and assimilate it into the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And we know that happens. We know that it takes place over about an 18-year period from 738 to 720 BCE. How do we know? Well, not only does the Bible tell us, but they tell us. The Neo-Assyrians left records saying exactly what they did. And then later people wrote about it as well. So Josephus, right? Some of you know Josephus, right? He was a Jewish general who became a Roman historian uh, after <laughs> he, well, changed little things here or there. Uh, but that's the Masada story, which we won't go into here. Anyway, Josephus over in Rome is writing in the first century CE, and he says, there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, while the ten tribes are beyond the Euphrates until now and are an immense multitude not to be estimated by numbers. Now he's writing much later. I mean, first century CE and all this took place way back when. I mean, you're not, I don't know if you're going to buy it or not. But second uh, Estrus, which we just mentioned in another uh, context also has stuff written here. It says the nine or ten tribes that were taken away from their own land into exile in the days of King Hoshea, whom Shalmaneser, king of the Assyrians, made captives. He took them across the river. That would be the Euphrates. They were taken into another land. But they formed this plan for themselves. They would leave the multitude of the nations, go to a more distant region so that they can keep to their own statutes that they had not kept in their own land. And it says further, they went in by the narrow passages of the Euphrates River. And from that time, the Most High performed signs for them, stopped the channels of the river till they had crossed over. They journeyed, it was a long way, a year and a half, and that country is called Arzareth. So, the million-dollar question, at least for me, is where is Arzareth? Because if we can figure out where Arzareth is, we know where the Ten Lost Tribes are, right? It's as simple as that. Or is it? It's never that simple, right? 
So, because rather than asking where is Arzareth, we should be asking what is Arzareth? Because even though there have been many, 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 many books published recently, and this is just an assortment of them, none of them are able to solve where Arzareth is. So they have suggested North America for the Ten Lost Tribes, Japan, Central Asia, even England, right? Some of you have read these books and you're nodding. And of course we have today the Lemba in Africa, say their descendants, the Bene Manasha in India, the Falasha in Ethiopia, and this has impacted today's world, right? Remember the Ethiopian airlifts to Israel, all based on the fact that they might be descendants of the 10 lost tribes. So what is Arzareth? Well, it's not a place name, it's actually a corruption of two Hebrew words, Eretz Aheret, which means simply another land. So they took him to another land. That doesn't help, does it? Right, so Arzareth is not really a place, it's a description of where they went. So what else do we have? Now I had fun with this because this was kind of a, like a detective mystery. I pretended I was Sherlock Holmes, right, rather than an archeologist, right? So in the book of Second Kings, it says that King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, that we call him TP3 for short, but Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria came, and then it names the places that he captured. Abel meth which in fact is being excavated right now by a friend of mine, Hatsor, Gilead, Galilee, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So in the biblical account, it talks about these 10 lost tribes being carried away. Is there any confirmation from outside? Yes, Tiglath-Pileser III himself, in one of his inscriptions, he says, and you can probably read the Akkadian as easily as I can, right? right? But in case it's too small, let me translate. Israel, all its inhabitants and their possessions I led to Assyria. Now remember, that's in Iraq today. They overthrew their king Pekah, or Pekah, and I placed Hosea as king over them. I received from them 10 talents of gold, 1,000 talents of silver as their tribute, and I brought them to Assyria. So this is confirmation. Now, as an archeologist, I usually want three independent sources before I'll believe anything. I mean, call me a skeptic, but that's what I am. So here we've got the biblical account, and we've got an extra biblical account from the actual king, and then you want archeology span or something like that. So we've got two of the three here so far. He's got additional inscriptions, and he says in those inscriptions he spared only the city of Samaria, which is the capital of the Northern Kingdom, and that he had captured and annexed the rest of the Northern Kingdom, and he tells us how many people he took. 13,520 are taken off into exile. So they are gonna go from Northern Kingdom, Israel today, to Assyria, all right? So that's where he claims some of them went to. But he's not the only one. Shalmaneser V, who is his successor, he does the same sort of thing. And the biblical account tells us similar things. Somewhere around 722 BCE, then the king of Assyria invaded all the land, came to Samaria, for three years he besieged it, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And now he tells us where in Assyria. He placed them in Hala on the Habor, that's the Habor River, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So these are the Persians, all right? So 
we have then these deportees going specifically to this region. There's Gozan, there's Hala, that's Nineveh where the tablet of um, Gilgamesh had been found. And then in, again, Second Kings, he then says further, whoever's writing, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and Kutha and Ava and Hamath, placed them in the cities of Samaria in place of the people of Israel. They took possession of Samaria and settled in its cities. This is what's called deportation and reportation. You're moving the people out of the area and replacing them with other people. You can probably guess why the Assyrians did it. You're less likely to rebel if you're not in your homeland. If you're a couple thousand miles away, it doesn't do you any good to rebel. You don't even know where you are. But if you're in your homeland and you want the oppressors out, you'll rebel. So the Assyrians do this deportation and reportation. So this is where he is bringing people in to this region. So Israelites out, other people in. So. This is what it looks like with moving everybody around. Neo-Assyrians did it all the time. It was one of their hallmarks of, the, of their government. Now, the next guy, we just did TP3 and then Shamanizer V. Sargon II is the next one that comes in. And by the way, if you need names for pets or anything like that, these are great names to give them, right? If you go out and say, here, Sargon, you'll be the only one with the Sargon in the, in the dog park. All right, so he says in 720, at the beginning of my rule, in the very first year I reigned, I besieged and conquered Samaria. Now, I, I know what you're saying. Wait a minute. Shamanizer V just said that he did it. In fact, they both claim the same thing. And one of the things that archaeologists and ancient historians are trying to figure out is, which one is lying? Who actually did it? I actually think that um, Shamanizer started it, but Sargon finished it, because Shamanizer was only in power for a little bit uh, and didn't finish what he started. So I think Sargon finished it off. But he says, at the beginning of my reign, I besieged and conquered Samaria. I led away as booty 27,280 inhabitants of it. I formed from among them a contingent of 50 chariots, made the remaining inhabitants assume social positions, stalled over them an officer of mine, imposed on them the tribute of the former king. So he actually takes away, what, almost 30,000 people and then makes them a part of his army, some of them, with a um, contingent of 50 chariots. Uh, and then he goes on, this is another inscription, he says again, 27,280 people and 200 chariots that he mustered from among them. And the rest of them, he says, I caused to take their dwelling in the midst of Assyria. So he's taken them away. But then he says, the city of Samaria I restored, and greater than before I caused it to become. The people of my lands conquered by my two hands I brought within it. So again, he's doing deportation and reportation. And in fact, Samaria becomes one of the capitals of the new Assyrian province that's right there, as does Megiddo, as we'll see tonight. Megiddo becomes Magidu in the Assyrian writings, and so Samaria and Megiddo continue on. A little bit later, Sargon II's palace back in Mesopotamia from 716 BCE, he tells us again, he says, the tribes of Tamud and Ibadid and Marsama and Halapa, distant Arabs who inhabit the desert, 
who know neither high nor low officials and who had not brought tribute to any king with the weapon of the god Asur, my lord, I struck them down and the remnant of them I deported and settled them in Samaria. So here he says distant Arabs are being brought into Samaria and it looks like this. Here's the deportation map and they are settled down again in place of those 27,000 people he deported. So what about these 10 lost tribes? Because for me, we've satisfied the three different independent. I didn't show you a picture, but the archeologists that excavated Samaria, the Harvard excavation, found evidence of a destruction at right at this time, 720 BCE. So we've got biblical account, extra biblical, and archeology. span So this happened. The question is, what happened to them? What about the 10 lost tribes? Between the efforts, I counted up, I had free time one evening. Between the efforts of TP3, Shalmaneser V, Sargon II, they carried away more than 40,000 people. And we actually have these numbers from their own inscriptions, right? And I just showed you them, 13,520, 27,280. That makes about 40,000 people. That's a lot of people, right? But is it all of the 10 lost tribes? I don't think so. There have been surveys that have been done since about 1967 by Israel Finkelstein and other people, and they're showing that at that time, up in the Northern Kingdom, which the Neo-Assyrians conquered, there were between about 225,000, 222,000, and 350,000 people living. So if they took away 40,000 people, that's a lot, but it's also not a lot. Not if you've got 350,000 people. That's only what? A little like 10%, give or take. And in fact, those same surveys done in the south, in Judah and Jerusalem, they show that the population suddenly jumped. Jerusalem went from 1,000 people to about 15,000 people, and Judah went from 40,000 to 120,000 at this same time. So what most archeologists think is that the sudden influx, the sudden growth of numbers, is everybody fleeing from the Northern Kingdom. You've got refugees. And that's when Jerusalem becomes big time, is after 720 BCE. So I think that is quite true. So that, if we jump Judah from 40,000 to 120,000, that's another 80,000 people that would have fled from the North. So I think we've got a combination. We've got the people that are carried off into exile in Assyria. They went to where the biblical account says, Halach, Habor, Gozan, city of the Medes, right? So I think we can do away with all those other suggestions. No North America, no Japan, no Central Asia, no England. Um, most of the, as many as I would say 20% went into exile or they went south to Judah. So 40,000 carried off, 80,000 flee, that's 120,000, that's still only 20% at the most. So I would argue, I put it out as a hypothesis, uh, that the 10 lost tribes were never lost, that we know exactly where they are. Some went to Assyria, some went to Judah, the vast majority simply stayed where they had lived and they intermarried with the new arrivals that the Neo-Assyrians brought in and they became what we call the Samaritans, which are known to us from both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. So I think the vast majority were there. What happened was their kingdom was lost 
because there is no northern kingdom of Israel after 720. It's simply a province of the much larger Neo-Assyrian Empire. So the people aren't lost, their kingdom is. So what I think is actually, I wouldn't say more interesting, but is another part of the story that never gets told is that 19 years later, Judah, the southern portion, comes under the attack of the Neo-Assyrians in its own right, right? They've already done away with northern, with Israel. Now they're coming after Judah. 701, Sennacherib comes on down and launches an attack that Lord Byron memorialized, right? The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold. His cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. The sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue rave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Anybody have to read that poem back in high school or college? Right, so he is memorializing that attack in 701. And in fact, Sennacherib tells us in his own uh, inscription, as for Hezekiah the Judean, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong fortified cities, countless small villages in their vicinity, conquered them and brought out of them 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle, and I counted them as booty. So we've got with that, with the Neo-Assyrian exile and with the later Neo-Babylonian exile where they take away a whole mess of other people and we know that they're in Mesopotamia. This is a tablet uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, rations for Jehoiachin, the king of Judah. We know he's living in Mesopotamia after he's been carried off in the Babylonian exile. So if you merge those two, 701 by the Neo-Assyrians and 586 by the Neo-Babylonians, you've got almost a larger deportation for the southern two tribes that are left than you did for the 10 northern tribes. And yet nobody is ever talking about the two lost tribes. They always talk about the 10 lost tribes. And in fact, just recently, last year, new evidence was reported, there's another 200 clay tablets which appeared on the antiquities market, which is not good. We don't know actually where they're from, but they've been published now. And the tablets come from an, a site, again, I tell you, we don't know where it is in Iraq. All right, almost out of time. We don't know the modern place where it came from, but the ancient name is Al-Yahudu. Al-Yahudu, Judah town. This has got to be where some of the people are living during the Babylonian exile. It's the first evidence that we have archeologically besides that tablet that mentioned Jehoiachin that this actually took place. And there was an exhibit uh, at uh, a museum in Jerusalem uh, last year or so, and now there are two books out there. So there is evidence where those exiles went to. Uh, and I would say that I may or may not be right about the 10 lost tribes, but we certainly know where those two lost tribes went, and they're not so lost because, of course, they come back 
after the Babylonian exile when Cyrus the Great lets them come in. So of all the biblical mysteries that I investigated, I think only the Ten Lost Tribes do I even have a hypothesis about where they might be. But that leads me then to my final conclusion. All of these mysteries have to be examined using proper evidence. This is science, after all. Archaeological, literary, historical data. There is no room for junk science. This is real science. Okay, my friends call it fuzzy or soft science, but that's according to the chemist and the physicist, right? This is a social science. And you have to put it into historical context in order to really understand it and also accept the fact that you might not be able to solve all of them now, maybe in the future, but for now we don't have so many answers. But a friend of mine, Randy Yunker, who teaches at Andrews College, which is a, uh, Andrews University, which is Seventh-day Adventist, they have to wrestle with this. Your faith on the one hand and archaeology on the other. And they came up with what they call the Andrews Rules, which I present right here. For their archaeologists, how to wrestle with personal faith and archaeological data. And they said that we should all be forthright with our findings. We should not minimize problems that are introduced by new data. We should also not stretch interpretations of data or make claims beyond what the data can support. And that we should take the history of the Bible seriously, but not place a burden on archaeology to try and prove it. I do biblical archaeology. That does not mean I'm trying to prove or disprove the Bible. It means I'm investigating the time period and the people that lived at that time. All right. So, I know for a fact that my book is not going to end the debates. In fact, I hope it doesn't. I hope it starts them anew. I hope that book circles start looking. I hope that uh, people sitting in Torah study circles do it. Uh, because I do think we owe it to those ancient people, the people of the Hebrew Bible, and to the rest in the ancient world to do nothing less. Treat it seriously and be, above all, interested in the discussions. That's all I ask for. Thank you. We have time for questions? Three questions. Okay, make them good. Three questions. Who wants to start? Any? No? We're good? We're done. Oh, yes. I can barely hear the Assyrians in Egypt? No, Judah. In Judah, yes. I'm sorry. In did not overthrow the country. No, they did not overthrow the country. They just pretty much weakened it, and uh, it wasn't much fun to live there. Right. When the Neo-Assyrians came in, they took away the royal family and the upper level. Uh, and in fact, um, it's very similar to what happened with the Neo-Babylonians and the Babylonian exile. So we have still people living there, but they would have been the lower classes. Right. So just take away the top 1%. Right. But... Um, Actually, no, wait, I'm going to walk that back because we've got 200,000 people taken in 701, which is what you're actually asking about. That would have decimated the country. But there are still some people there. 200,000, there's still going to be some people there. I, yes, there, there's a, yeah, is there functioning monarchy still? Well, the biblical account says yes. I mean, you've still got people in there. Um, but in terms of actually functioning, I think it's pretty hard to be functioning for a while. 
Judah's going to become a backwater for a while, but then when everybody finally returns, it, it comes back up. All right, so after, if we jump down to the end of the Babylonian exile, after 539 and the temple gets rebuilt, then everything is functioning again, but then the Persians come in, and then the Greeks come in, and then the Romans come in. So I would say after 586 in particular, that Judah, I mean, Judah basically ends at that point. But after 701, it's still going for a while. Right, so a good question. So the people in Ethiopia and India and other uh, places that have said that they're descendants, how did they get there? Um, I would agree with the scholars that suggest that those may be the result of merchants and traders that are settling in those areas, not necessarily way back in antiquity, but maybe more recently. So in particular in India, I suspect that you've got Jewish merchants and traders that have settled down. Uh, and you know, you've got people on both ends of your trade route. And so that's where they come from. Ethiopians perhaps as well. Um, but then I would not discount that in the general, uh, you could almost call it a diaspora after these, that maybe they went elsewhere on their own volition. So for example, we know in 586 that uh, Jeremiah goes down to Egypt, right, if I remember correctly. That would be another instance there. So there may be all kinds of other reasons, but I like the merchants and traders idea because it makes sense to me. But, um, and I would certainly not discount, especially, uh, again, if I remember correctly, some of the DNA analyses are showing that there is a Y chromosome in there and there, they may be Kohanim, so there may be something to it, but I'm not sure you have to go all the way back to 701 BCE or 586. It may be much more recent, I think. But I'm not a geneticist, so. One more question, yes. Okay, so the question is that the Arabs that are living there today, did they move in from the surrounding areas? Um, I actually wrote about this in another book that I've got called Jerusalem Besieged uh, from Ancient Canaan to Modern Israel. And I went through all the battles that have been fought in and for Jerusalem uh, over the last 4,000 years. And I used, at the beginning and end of each of the chapters, I showed a use and abuse of the history by modern people, both politicians and generals and such. And so that was one of the questions is, especially with the modern, say, Palestinians claiming that they're descended from the, the Philistines and all that, where did they come from? The vast majority of the Arabs in that region seem to come in after 638 CE, that is, after Muhammad takes over the region. And they're coming in from Saudi Arabia and everywhere else. So if you did DNA, you're probably going to find that the modern Palestinians are related to the Arabs in the surrounding area. And they have been there for 1400 years, shall we say. So the modern Palestinians are not, as far as I'm concerned, related to the ancient Canaanites uh, at all. But they have been there for 1400 years. 
As far as Israelis being linked to Israelites, that's a question for DNA to also address, and those questions are being asked. So it's an interesting situation, but every time Arafat, for example, said, we are descended from the Canaanites, I would say, uh, no, you're not. But it was a political issue at the time, as it remains today. So excellent question. And I think in a lot of these cases, DNA is going to be the answer going forward, and we may be able to resolve a lot of these questions. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>